This podcast is brought to you by Aldis International, supplying your expert AI and digital transformation staffing needs across the US and Europe. Today, you are listening to our AI in Action series, where leading minds in AI from across the world share their story, success, and advice. AI in Action cuts through the hype and explores the true impact of artificial intelligence in our world today. You're listening to AI in Action. I'm your host, JP Valentine. Our guest today is Jason King. Jason is the Director of Data Science at Exilis. Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you, JP. Oh, it's our pleasure. We appreciate it. So, Jason, let's start with yourself. Can you give us a brief overview of your background, where you first got started in technology, and, and sort of walk us through some of the roles you've held along the way, taking us up to just before you joined Exilis? At heart, I'm a physicist. Um, I guess you could say my journey in tech started undergrad. I just picked the hardest thing I could think of. And at the time that was a physics degree at UT Knoxville. And I figured uh, it's sort of funny to think about it now, but I had always thought, hey, I can just switch to engineering, which is probably not um, (laughs) if this is too hard, but uh, probably uh, would have been a lot more difficult actually in retrospect. So I uh, actually got my PhD in physics uh, from the University of Tennessee uh, Space Institute. Uh, That's like a graduate-only research facility uh, in Tullahoma, Tennessee, which is um, not, it is part of the UT Knoxville campus. It's very closely associated, but it's a satellite facility and it's graduate only. And um, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in applied physics and at the time, you know, I had gone out, I had gone out to a number of different uh, graduate facilities, and I was most attracted to uh, UTSI because uh, they were interested in doing an RA immediately, so no, no one-year TA or anything. And I was uh, day one in the lab um, doing a lot of confocal microscopy, uh, and eventually I was um, working on... Um, uh, single molecule trapping, so specifically around a technique called the uh, anti-Brownian electrokinetic uh, trap, which is um, a way to study uh, single fluorescent molecules in solution, um, and it really involves a lot of uh, uh, high-speed control theory and uh, image recognition and uh, just just a multitude of different things across data that actually come in pretty handy today. Um, after I finished up uh, graduate school, I had a, a little bit of a break. I knew that um, I wanted to get to uh, NIST, so I had actually put in an application for an NRC postdoc. But in the intermediate period, I worked in, um, in a small firm that did uh, aerospace. And there I was a research scientist where I just took on um, a couple of different projects where I was just trying to solve some we'll say esoteric problems, <laughs> um, things like uh, butt welding on, on uh, exotic plastics and that sort of stuff. Uh, I actually did get a, a National Research Council uh, fellowship uh, to work at NIST, the uh, Gaithersburg campus. And uh, for those of you who may not know, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And that was uh, really uh, an extension of the work I had done for my PhD. 
where I was taking those techniques and I was applying them to uh, protein therapeutics. So the idea would be to study uh, the process of aggregation in um, drugs like Humira or other uh, monoclonal, uh, monoclonal antibody um, formulations and really understand um, you know, what conditions lead to their growth or their creation. And at that point, um, you know, I was having some difficulties in that research, but I was taking on a lot more data processing for my group. Um, so it, it turns out that I was uh, spending a lot of my time doing image analysis, looking at um, those protein aggregates and solution, but also uh, doing um, what you might call like uh, orthogonal approaches for uh, metrology. So. You know, it's it's kind of tricky because a lot of the stuff we were looking at was sort of at the diffraction limit and um, has a very similar or extremely hydrated. So a lot of the stuff you're trying to look at is is very difficult to see, even with some techniques like phase microscopy. So as a result, we uh, would often try two or three different measurement techniques and uh, cross-reference the results. So I got really focused on... <laughs> Brownian motion and um, image detection or, or object detection through automated image analysis. And by measuring, like, say, just the vibration of uh, these particles in solution, you can get an idea of what their hydrodynamic radius is. Um, so we had a lot of success there. Um, I did a very brief postdoc um, at the University of Maryland while I continue at the end of my NRC postdoc. And uh, at that point, my wife was really interested in moving back to Nashville. So I started hunting around for something in um, sort of connected to, you know, my background, but also maybe just in the realm of data. And that's when I started to stumble into data science, particularly data science in, uh, in respect to healthcare. So after a lot of self-study and a huge amount of uh, cold calling and applications, I um, came on to Exos in uh, Excellent. 2016. Excellent. Jason, thank you for the overview, and, and I appreciate the, the level of detail you've gone into because um, I think it's important for people who are listening that are coming from the non-traditional backgrounds of computer science that to, to hear somebody who's come in the science route and now landed where you're at, it, it's often helpful to understand the rationale and, and the steps and the decision-making behind it. So. Talk to us about Exilis. Uh, as a high level, who are Exilis? What are you doing specifically within within healthcare? And then give us some insight into your role uh, leading things in the data team. Sure. So um, at its heart, Exilis is a uh, workflow management company for uh, utilization review. And um, in case you've never heard of it, utilization review is a department in the hospital that um, is uh, staffed by um, experienced clinical uh, subject matter experts, so really nurses, right? And um, what they're doing is uh, fulfilling, I would say, like a compliance role, but really they're trying to streamline the process of care. And the whole idea here is that um, they're not uh, always interacting with the, with the um, patient, but they are monitoring uh, all active encounters, and they're making sure that people are getting uh, things like um, pre-authorization you know they're being treated in a or they're receiving the correct level of care and by that i mean should they be admitted 
Um, is it appropriate for them to have been admitted into the hospital as an inpatient? And uh, also ensuring that they're being uh, discharged in a timely manner. So in a way, it's um, sort of the first line of defense in preventing denial events. And by that, I mean where the, obviously the provider uh, submits a claim to the payer and then they deny it based on the need for medical care. So um, at Exilus, we pretty much, uh, we're a SAS tool and we uh, provide an interface for those utilization review nurses uh, to do their job more efficiently. And uh, we're not automating decision-making or anything like that. We're just present one, I'd say the zeroth level sort of interface is just making all the information that's uh, relevant to those UR nurses um, easily obtainable. So this is things like, you know, they may have access to the EMR, but they have now a dashboard that sort of consolidates all of the necessary information. And then beyond that, um, the value we provide is really um, to give them some augmentation to their workflow. So you might imagine at any given time, the UR nurse has to review 100 active encounters. And it's been pretty low tech um, up until, you know, Exilus. For the most part, you would get that sheet, you might print it off, and then you would just go through all 100 patients just every day, right? Um, you might have some heuristics uh, to sort of order things, maybe based off of current length of stay or something, but um, in general, it was very ad hoc and it was hospital to hospital, right? Um, so what we do is uh, we try to, uh, we have a number of different models that address different uh, field or different aspects of the case. I'd say we really um, concentrate on three different domains ingress, uh, patient stratification, and egress. So by ingress, as I had mentioned earlier, you know, there's always a question of whether or not to admit someone. And the truth is there that um, it's not always clear and there can be a huge, you know, financial uh, difference uh, for a patient that is actually in the same bed, uh, but is um, maybe outpatient or inpatient, right? The tricky part about <laughs> trying to predict if somebody should be an inpatient is that there is no clinical definition of what it means to be inpatient. It actually varies by the payer and even, we'll say, the healthcare market. Now, it's pretty clear that if someone comes in and they're in a very bad state that they should be admitted, but it's sometimes a little unclear if you have, say, an outpatient surgery and there's some complication whether or not you really should be um, admitted into the hospital, which is a strange concept because, again, you could be in a bed in the hospital and not be an inpatient. It really is a financial class distinction. So, you know, the kind of models that we have are trying to target this state that is really um, somewhat subjective. And it's compounded in its difficulty because the different payers will have a different internal definition or threshold for that inpatient status. Um, but of course, they're not going to share that with the provider. <laughs> and even if they could, um, it's maybe not good to think about, you know, what is the minimum threshold I need to get to to have someone admitted, right? It really should focus more, you know, in, in my opinion, on the outcome. Uh, so that's some more on the ingress side. Um, 
when we talk about patient stratification, it's really just about identifying the type of encounter. So there's a pretty common system, uh, the MSDRG, which is the Diagnostic Related Group. And if you're an inpatient and you're a Medicare patient, you are um, essentially grouped into different categories. Um, that can affect the payout, but it also really kind of gives you the topic of an encounter, right? Like what, what happened? It might be something like pneumonia with major complications, or in some cases it might be uh, live birth uh, without complications, let's say, right? That information can drive a lot of different hospital processes. Uh, maybe you want to improve your outcomes for a particular class of procedures or patients. But unfortunately, that information about that DRG is typically not available during the encounter. So a lot of the time, this comes after the fact, after you've done the coding and you're getting ready to submit the claim. Um, so as much as possible, we're trying to predict that working DRG as early as possible. And I really should take a step back and say that, you know, the kind of data we're working with at Exos is pretty much anything that's available within the EMR. So we have real-time uh, HL, real HL7 feeds set up between all of our uh, provider clients and, and Exos. And um, probably within about a minute or two of them entering information into the database or into their EMR, we're going to get a copy of it. And all of our models run in real time. They're universal models that work across all clients. And um, we're updating uh, those predictions. You know, is somebody appropriate for inpatient? Are they uh, a particular DRG um, in real time while the case is active? That way that information can be actionable. And then the final set of uh, models that we work on are really about egress and it's anticipating discharge events. Uh, so there's a whole concept in the, we'll say, clinical financial space about avoidable days. And um, as an example, you might imagine that if you break your leg and you're in the hospital for three days, um, on the third day, you might, you know, your your physician or your attending physician might say, um, well, you're free to go in the morning uh, following an x-ray, you know, final exit x-ray. Um, so morning comes and then you wait around all day. <laughs> for that final x-ray and you don't get to leave until 3 p.m. Well, it turns out that um, the payer considers it an avoidable day. Even though you were occupying that bed, even though you were not really discharged, um, you know, there still incurs a cost, uh, but the payer is often unwilling to pay for that because really that kind of was an administrative delay. So again, getting back to that whole augmented um, uh, workflow or augmented workflow, if we can anticipate those discharge events um, earlier in the encounter, so I can maybe predict uh, when I think someone's going to be medically ready to discharge or when I think they're actually going to, the attending physician is going to say you release them, um, the UR nurse can basically look ahead and schedule that exit x-ray, right? So they can make sure that there's a slot in the morning and that they're not going to uh, incur additional costs or um, be subject to that avoidable day scenario. I mean, and that extends beyond um, even just stuff like administrative delays, right? Um, but you'd be surprised how often that comes up. So even things like, hey, you can't take care of yourself at home, so you need to go to a skilled nursing facility. Well, let's make sure you have a bed to actually be transferred to. Otherwise, you're going to be waiting at the hospital 
taking up a bet, right? Yeah, and, and for anyone who's listening who's who's been through the U.S. healthcare system, uh, will 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 hear this and it will resonate. I know it does for me uh, as somebody who had surgery in the past few years. The the complexity in in the allocation of spend is just mind boggling. Um, I, I want to get your take on that in in a moment, but I want to focus now on on your team, the the current makeup, the growth of the team, uh, and the the growth of the company as a whole, because Exilif. Exilus has been growing at a, at a substantial rate, even in the past few years. So you're you're in the center of it. Talk to us about your data science team. What's the makeup and what has the growth been like? Yeah, so I have a team of six data scientists now, uh, two senior data scientists, a junior data scientist, and um, three uh, DS2s, is what we'll say. Um, and um, they have a good variety of uh, backgrounds. You know, we've got some people from engineering, uh, physics backgrounds. You know, maybe that's showing my bias a little bit, right? Um, although, you know, I'm, there's no hard requirement for someone to have a, um, you know, advanced degree really to work at Excellus. Uh, it really is like the proof of work, right? So as a team, um, we work very, it, it's, it's, in, it's interesting. It's kind of collaborative, but also very um Freeform. So I try to uh, advocate for a um, discovery-based development pipeline. So obviously, we want to try to do, uh, we want to try to bring value to the company, but we have to recognize, and I often try to, you know, communicate this to uh, our senior leadership that we may take on projects that will um, not have a direct deliverable or get directly to the client. It's just going to improve all other data science offerings. And it might be something like, um, well, let's say some normalization project, right? Because again, you know, we work with a huge variety of different hospitals, different EMRs. So, you know, something as simple as um, uh, normalizing medications, um, you know, I think the FDA has got something like 150,000 active NDCs. Well, if I look at the unique codes that I've got across all facilities, I mean, it might be in the order of two to three million unique codes. So clearly there's some overlap and it's a question of how to get that uh, combined. And at the individual hospital level or to the individual UR nurse, you know, I can always um, simply display what they send us, but that doesn't have, and it will be meaningful to them in the sort of information retrieval uh, domain. But for our purposes, it becomes very difficult to use those medications because, again, there's no common, you know, we, we want to build global models. We want to build models that are generalizable. Um, but, of course, you know, now we've got all these sort of custom paths, right? Um, so that's sort of an example of a, of, a, of a project that I might kick to one of my uh, team members and really just let them go at it. Right. Or we might have a code jam or do something like that to solve a common business problem. We do have uh, specific products. And um, I had mentioned earlier, like the working DRG model. And in that case, I, I really do have like a, a product owner. Right. So I've got one of my senior data scientists is my go to. And, you know, she's always looking to improve that model, um, even uh, outside of the uh, domain of just having to update it when the, the actual targets change. But um, 
you know, one of the challenges here is that, that everything we do is sort of experimental. It's not clear when we take up a project that we're actually going to be able to uh, deliver a viable product. Um, and for every prototype that we advance to, you know, the senior leadership team, uh, there are probably thousands of different models that we've discarded along the way. So with that in mind, you know, as the team grows, as the company grows, as we expand into new domains, and you know, we have more clients that are asking for specific um, uh, functionality, um, I obviously need to grow the team. And <laughs> some of the uh, things that we're really looking for are people who can um, really take on more, um, I would say, full stack development. Uh, in the context of data science, because uh, a lot of what we do is, uh, the truth is a lot of what we do is a combination of data science and data engineering. Um, it's not enough just to make a model, clearly. You have to deploy it and you have to have it um, set up in a way that it is scalable and affordable. So uh, everyone on my team currently does that, you know, for their own models and everyone is sort of cross-trained in that domain. Um, it would be great to have somebody who has uh, some better tooling practices. <laughs> um, so as we grow, that's the kind of skills that I'm looking for. Yeah, really helpful. And and with the rate of growth that uh, Exilis has, has seen, I'm sure there's going to be lots of opportunities uh, for people to join. You mentioned the team doubling in size. So um, great time for people interested in this space um, to, to, to get involved. Um, I want to move on then. Final, final question for me is, you know, uh, for people interested in this space, what advice would you offer to them to, to sort of transition from a different industry or, or develop a skill set that's going to help them at interview stage when applying to, to get into healthcare? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, when I think back to some of the people that I hired and some of the better interviews that I've had, um, the common thread there I'd say is probably a passion in the projects that you take on. Um, so, you know, I did transition from, we'll say an academic environment, and I didn't have any experience in software development or data science in, in industry. And um, I think what really worked well for me was to, to, do, to pick up some projects, projects that I cared about. Um, in my case, you know, I was able to help some uh, coworkers at NIST, but um, some of the best people that I've hired have had some really interesting projects that, um, you know, I've had, the uh, I've had the fortune to sit through uh, presentations or demonstration or demo days or those sort of things. And that passion really carries through, right? Um, the truth is that there may be some, we'll say more marketable <laughs> projects, but I, I really don't want to see the same data sets, the same targets. I'd rather see something that is uh, it clearly interesting to the person that uh, put it together. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to, to sort of shortcut lack of commercial experience and offset it with, with interest because in interview people are going to look at the body of work in its entirety and a github account with some really interesting projects can go a long way to offset lack of hands-on commercial experience so i'm glad you highlight that um jason i appreciate you coming on and talking to us it's it's been a pleasure learning about your background quite an interesting journey 
clearly the space you're operating now with Exilis is one where there's a lot of impact to be had and and anyone who's involved can can really see the impact for for patient care and improvements and, and it's exciting times there's a lot of growth at Exilis so uh, happy to have you on and talk to us about that we wish you and your team all the best in the year ahead well thank you very much JP yeah it's been a pleasure to be here Thanks for listening to this episode of the Aldis Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any Android podcast of choice. You can also head over to our website, www.aldis.com, to listen to more podcasts, view our open roles, and stay up to date with industry news. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more great episodes coming very soon.